Well, we continue to be in a series in the Gospel of Luke, and over the last several weeks, we have been slowly working through Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer. And the reason for taking this much time is really pretty simple. Uh, we know this prayer really well, and most of us, I assume, have it memorized, and we probably don't even need to put it uh, in the bulletin. And like with anything we know really well, it's easy to take it for granted and miss the richness of what Jesus teaches us about God and ourselves through this prayer. So like we have for the last three or so weeks, we're going to read the entirety of this passage again, Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. And the tendency, I'll just say this, the tendency among Americans is like, we've already read this. Do we really need to read this again? And that's part of the problem, is that we need to be the kind of people as Scripture intended us to be, the kind of people that come back to passages perhaps we know well, and we meditate on it, and we think through it. And as you do that, as you spend time with passages, and don't just rush through them in order to get to the next one, you will start to find that there are riches there and nuggets of truth that you have never seen before that are at work in you through the Spirit. So let me pick it up with verse 1, chapter 11. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished... One of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you, who has a friend, will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, Lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek. And you will find, knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who you should say, oh, excuse me, I skipped the whole page. For the one who knocks, it will be opened. Verse 11, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. Let's go to Him again in prayer. Heavenly Father, as Jesus teaches in His word, we are free to come and ask and to seek and to knock, and You will answer. As He ends that passage by saying, You will freely give of the Spirit to whoever wants. So we ask now that you would freely give of your Spirit that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear, that this Word would work deep within our hearts and our minds and our desires and even our feet, that we might follow you everywhere. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. In order to get at the riches of this prayer, which there are many, I have been taking us through key questions of what is called uh, systematic theology. Systematic theology does a lot of things, but like we've been doing with the Heidelberg Catechism, which itself is an example of systematic theology, one of the important things systematics does is summarize uh, 
um, what the Bible teaches on a particular subject. And in turn, it anticipates our questions related to those teachings or those doctrines. So, for example, the questions from the Heidelberg Catechism today uh, ask the question, well, what is faith? And in turn, what must Christians believe then? That is, what is the content of their faith? In regards to the Lord's Prayer, what does it mean that Jesus teaches us to address God not as Yahweh, as he revealed his name to Moses at the burning bush, Yahweh Elohim, but as Father, even as Jesus himself addresses God as his Father? We've already touched on that a few weeks ago, and we're going to come back to that again because it's really important here in the weeks to come. Included within God's identity, he certainly is Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, the one who made the heavens and the earth, even as he is our Father. Well, is also the understanding of our place and relationship to him. So we are his creatures, we are his image bearers, and we owe our lives to him, even as through Jesus we are now counted as his sons and daughters too. Further, as his image bearers, he has given us dominion over this world that he made, but we are to rule it in communion with him and according to his word. That's what stands behind the phrase, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as his creatures, we are completely dependent on him for everything, everything, food, water, air, clothing, shelter, uh, fellowship, community. We need every last one of those things. And so we rightly look to him to provide for us. And in response, we live gratefully in faith for the abundance he gives. But then over the last three weeks, we have looked at the phrase, forgive us our sins. And we have done this in terms of the questions, well, okay, what is sin? And what does it mean for God to forgive us? And this led us to the reality that sin is way worse, far worse than we think it is, especially as Americans reject the notion that they are in any sense responsible to God and have really embraced relativism as in nobody can judge me, even as if you just follow current political ideology, the, the morality has ramped itself up to a deep legalism. Instead, God's steadfast loving kindness and faithfulness, no, in the face of that, it resounds throughout the Bible. But perhaps it comes to its, its greatest point in, in light of our sin and what humans tend to do, the focal point in the cross and the doctrine of justification. It's like as the Westminster Shorter Catechism Summarize it. There's so much we can say about justification, but this is a good summary of it. It says, justification is an act of God's free grace. So a one-time event, accomplished event, an act, accomplished on the cross that God freely gives to whoever wants it. Whoever wants it. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You're not worthy of it. Even as God freely gives it, as he promised Eve and Abraham he would do. Through that one-time event, God pardons all our sins, all of them, past, present, future, and accepts us as righteous in His sight. In His sight, And here is the key point of why He does this. It's only because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. So <clears throat> that's language we don't use very often. 
So think of how, like in the, the parable of the prodigal son, in his sin, he received a robe from his father. His father draped him in his royalty. So Christ clothes us, he robes us in his righteousness. Now, it's not our righteousness. It's not our goodness. It's his. Or as Chad Bird recently put it, when the father sees us, he sees his son, period. Full stop. He doesn't see a glowing success or an embarrassing failure. He sees Jesus. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Paul says that in Colossians 3. And there's no safer hiding place in the world than in Christ. We receive all of this grace, all of this mercy by faith alone, like we were just talking about with the Heidelberg Catechism. It's like at, at Christmas, right? When show, someone shows up with a gift at your house, unannounced, and you didn't buy them anything. And the gift is such that you can't possibly reciprocate it. Well, faith is receiving the gift even as you know you have nothing to give in return. That's justification. But God doesn't just forgive us, and that's that. The purpose of salvation is to restore us to communion with Him. So it moves us from something to something. And in turn, to make us fully human as he intended for us. So he justifies us in order to adopt us as his children. And in turn, as his children, he works in us through his spirit more and more, enabling us to, as Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive those who are indebted to us. And these two key teachings really are, are summarized in what we would call the doctrine of adoption, which I just mentioned but then also the doctrine of sanctification. They work hand in glove. In fact, it moves justification, adoption, sanctification, resurrection, glorification, in just that order following the pattern or the work of, uh, of the human life. Now, a few weeks back, we mentioned the doctrine of adoption. In fact, it's all over this passage. In light of Jesus teaching his disciples to address God as Father, <clears throat> Excuse me. To call God Father is not metaphorical and it's not figurative. Jesus really means that God is now our Father through Him. And the way the Shorter Catechism again summarizes this doctrine, and you can just read it through the Bible. This is just a helpful handle. It goes like this Adoption is an act. So there's that same language from justification, right? This is a legal declaration that God does not take back. And it's of the free grace of God that he does it. So again, like, like with justification, there's nothing you can do to get adopted. Nothing, except to already be an orphan, alienated from God. Even so, it's not like, like God shows up to the animal shelter, to the pound, and examines all the dogs and says, you know what, I think this one's a good one. I'll take this one. It's not like that at all. No, God adopts us in and for his only son, Jesus Christ. That is, like with justification, we are adopted on account of Jesus, and we are adopted in him. And that language is all over Paul. 
That is, we are literally united to him through his spirit. And Jesus says to his father, these are my brothers and sisters who you gave to me. You gave them to me for whom I died. They are your sons too. And the shorter catechism continues, whereby all those who are justified are received into the number of his children, have his name put upon them. That is, you are directly identified with Christ, and though you cannot see his name on you, he can. He can. You are counted as among God's people, so you too bear his name. And the spirit of his son given to them, that is, you are now indwelled by Jesus through his spirit, becoming a living temple of God that is connected to all those who are indwelled by the spirit. If this sounds rich, and it's like, man, this is a lot, it's because there is. Salvation is huge. There's so much that goes on with you belonging to Christ. So while it may sound folksy, to call other Christians brother and sister as in brother Rob? Well, it's true. You know, through Christ and the giving of the Spirit, you are actually closer to a Christian who is not your blood relative than you are to a blood relative who does not belong to Christ. The Spirit is thicker than blood. And we are in turn, as it says, under his fatherly care and dispensations. That is, God doesn't love us like a benevolent, altruistic billionaire who gives away a bit of his money to the nameless poor. No, he loves us intimately as his children and he directs our steps in the way they should go. But wait, there's still more. Through Christ, we are admitted to all the freedoms and privileges of the sons of God made heirs of all the promises and fellow heirs with Christ in glory. So in other words, God through his son has not merely given us a tiny, cramped studio apartment. Like say, how Harry Potter got the space under the stairs in his uncle and aunt's house. And we should be thankful to get even that. No, no, like David did for Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, a crippled, useless man who was the grandson of King Saul who had hunted down David for years trying to kill him. David not only restored Mephibosheth to his grandfather Saul's ancestral, ancestral lands, which was basically political suicide, or it could be, he gave him a permanent seat at the king's table. Knowing he deserved none of this, Mephibosheth fell on his face before the king and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And from that point on, the man who was utterly useless, if not dangerous to the king and his natural enemy, he ate at the king's table for the rest of his life. Guess what the Lord's Supper does? You eat at the king's table now and for eternity. That's what it is pointing you towards. Now, our adoption into Christ is very much like, like how Athanasius summarized, how he summarized the gospel. He said, the Son of God became the Son of Man, that the sons of men might become the sons of God 
of God. That's exactly right. So when Jesus teaches us to pray our Father, all of that biblical teaching is in view. You have the freedom and the privilege of approaching the throne room of God in prayer because through our great high priest, Jesus, the veil separating us from the holy of holies in God's presence has been removed. And we pray knowing that in life and in death, you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and nothing can separate you from that. Nothing. Because you're his child. That same doctrine also teaches something very important about why Jesus would teach us to routinely confess our sin to God too. So while we have been justified and declared righteous in God's sight on account of Jesus, the entirety of our being, mind, heart, and body, it awaits full redemption. We still sin, even as God has already begun working that redemption in us through His Spirit. So one of the common misconceptions, even among Christians, is that God saves us and then leaves us to our own devices to figure things out. So God has given you the means to get your life right. He's given you a leg up, so now you better do it. Remember, the point of salvation is to restore us to communion with God. So for example, it's not as though God saved Israel from slavery in Egypt and then got them past the Red Sea and then said, great, I hope you have a good life. Make what I did for you count. And maybe, if you work everything out right, I'll see you in heaven later. No, the, the reason that God saved Israel, and God told Moses to tell this directly to Pharaoh, was so that they could worship him. That is, so that they could be restored to what was lost with Adam in the garden. So God justifies us and adopts us as his children for the purpose of sanctifying us and bringing us closer and closer to him. And this begins with a change of heart and mind where we are given eyes to see and ears to hear through the Spirit. It's why adult converts to the faith often speak of previous to Christ, not really understanding anything in the Bible. They, they've, they've heard stuff about the cross and faith and, and all that kind of stuff. But then, once they have come to Christ, it's as though a veil has been lifted from them. And this, this book that seemed cryptic to them before becomes incredible. I've heard, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, I've never seen this before. This is unbelievable. This has always been there. Yeah, it's, it's always been there. It's just you didn't have the Spirit. You didn't have the eyes to see. And the difference between believers and unbelievers is not a matter of the rational or the intellectual or perfection or even the will. It's a matter of the Spirit at work in them. And it's the reality of the promise made in the New Covenant language of Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 37 where God promised he promised to put his spirit within his people and write his law upon their hearts, a promise that was initially fulfilled at Pentecost and continues to be worked out in our own day. So the work of the spirit, it, it's so critical. The spirit applies the work of Jesus to us. That's why in his, his upper room discourse, the last full teaching of Jesus in, in the gospel of John before his crucifixion, Jesus promised 
This was his way of comforting his, his disciples. He promised that he was sending the helper, the spirit to be at work within his people. And Jesus saw this as a sign that the new creation and the kingdom had arrived in power and that they would be far better off with the spirit indwelling them. Now, listen to how the larger catechism summarizes the doctrine of sanctification and how the spirit is at work within his people. It says, sanctification is a work, not an act, a work of God's grace. So as opposed to an act, that one-time thing, this is something God continually does within us as an act of his love. It keeps going, whereby they whom God has before the foundation of the world chosen to be holy. Calvin just prayed that prayer. That's exactly from John 17 and Ephesians 1 and Revelation 13. Uh, so those God chose before he ever created anything to be set apart, to be holy, to be like him, those people are in time, that is over the course of their lifetimes. God, through the powerful operation of the Spirit, applies the death and resurrection of Christ onto them. So the Spirit works Christ into us so that in our death we will be united to him in his death. And in turn, we will be raised from the dead like his own resurrection. So his death substitutes for our death, even as his resurrection is the guarantee, the first fruits of our own coming resurrection. Now, just as an aside, from time to time, I hear, I hear the denial of the resurrection from well-intentioned pastors in our area. God's promise, you see, is to justify, adopt, sanctify, resurrect, and glorify every last bit of you, including your body that you have right now, the body you have always known. You can no more be separated from your body and still be you than you can be separated from your personality or your mind and still be you. Your body is a crucial, fundamental part of who you are. It's why when you stump your toe, you don't merely think that your toe hurts. You hurt. The promise of resurrection is not that God gives you a brand new body. God certainly did not do that for Jesus. No, the promise is that he will heal, restore, and glorify your body. It will both be the same body, even as Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians 15, that it will be changed. It will be changed. So those who have died and are with the Lord now are awaiting the resurrection of their body. So if you have been dead for a millennium and your body has long since been scattered as dust, or let's say you died at sea and you became chum, or you were burned up in a house fire, the one who spoke all things into existence has not lost track of all your atoms like how he knitted you together in your mother's womb, he will re-knit this body that is you. So this should tell you not only that your body really matters, and everyone feels that deep in our core, that our bodies really matter. It matters more to God than it does to us. But more so, God likes what he made. He did not make a mistake with you, and he thinks you are worth healing and restoring and resurrecting. 
But this work of sanctification does not wait until our resurrection and glorification. God works through His Spirit to renew us now and maturing us now, moving us to daily repentance as we grow more and more able with time to die to sin and rise into the new life. The work of the Spirit in sanctification is such that over time, it's not immediate. It's over time we grow increasingly more aware of our sin and in turn learn to hate it. And that hatred of our sin moves us to daily repentance and to love God's law, that is to love His ordering of our lives more and more. It's why Paul speaks of the fruit of the Spirit not as specific laws to keep, but as character traits. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are character traits that the Spirit is at work in us. And the Spirit, by writing the law in our hearts, uniting us to Christ, develops these things over time. Over time. This is why in Hebrews 12, it says that God disciplines those He loves. Discipline is a good thing. It's only children and the immature who think otherwise. So, for example, to be healthy, it requires discipline. And it's initially unpleasant to say exercise or to restrain from eating highly processed, sugared up foods or to have to regularly brush your teeth or to go through the daily ritual of bathing. But those disciplines are good. And eventually, Excuse me, it becomes unthinkable not to do them. Good parents are, are not permissive parents, right? They, they don't let their kids play in traffic or play with fire. Just the opposite. They are willing to walk with them, teaching them, and of course, at times, restraining them in order for them to grow into maturity. And of course, in our immaturity, like children, rolling their eyes at their parents correcting their table manners, or worse, when they are told no, and they think, or maybe they even say, I hate you. God does not give in to our immaturity. And he doesn't say, okay, baby, okay, baby. You don't have to do it, whatever you want. No, because he loves us, he will bring us to maturity, and sometimes he will do it with us kicking and screaming. This is why the Sermon on the Mount, which is really Jesus' teaching on what his spirit-filled disciples look like, moves beyond a superficial reading of the law to the deeper sense of the law that strikes at what lies hidden in our hearts and minds. So while it is easy, it is easy to go a lifetime without committing murder, it is really difficult to go a day, if not an hour, without condemning or hating other people. That God is willing to work in us and discipline us, forming us into the kind of people He wants us to be, which really is to be a fully alive human who walks in step with Him, is what the Shorter Catechism means when it talks about His fatherly care. And it's very good. It's very good that He does this. So the Spirit moves in us over time, leading us in a life of repentance, of turning more and more away from our sin and back to our God with the confidence that God truly loves us. It's like what 1 John says. If we say we have no sin, 
We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So people who are growing into maturity by the Spirit see their sin. They see their sin and they turn to God in daily repentance over it. That is opposed to, say, popular figures like, say, Justin Timberlake, who said at a recent concert, I ain't got nothing to apologize for ever. There's the difference. Those who are going into maturity would never say, I have no sin. They would not deceive themselves like that. But what John says right before this helps to inform what Jesus means when he says, as we forgive those who are indebted to us, John says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. That's where the practicing of the truth happens, in the fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So if we are walking in the light as Jesus is in the light, that is, if we walk with Jesus in step with the Spirit, then that means that we will have fellowship with one another, that is, with the body of Christ. That's where theory, so to speak, becomes practical. That's where truth meets real life. So even as we tend to take the gathering of the people of God lightly or as optional, God does not. And included within that is the fellowship of God's people, which by implication includes our willingness to forgive one another because every one of us are filled with sin. As we mentioned last week, forgiveness is never, it's fine, don't worry about it. Though it may feel that way with, you know, slights and and whatnot. No, to forgive another person, their sin against us is in a sense to eat another person's debt. So, for example, when a loan is forgiven, that means the person who owed the loan no longer is in debt, but that doesn't mean that debt magically just disappeared. I think a lot of young people think that. That's not how that works. No, it means someone else paid it. Perhaps Jesus' most striking teaching on this comes in response to Peter's question in Matthew 18 about how many times we should forgive someone for sinning against us. As many as seven times? Now think about that. How many times should I forgive someone for lying bold-faced to me? How many times should I forgive someone who drags my name through Snapchat? Seven times seems pretty generous. But Jesus says, no, no, 77 times, which is another way of saying you forgive without an endpoint. He then tells the parable of the unforgiving servant in which a king was settling accounts with his servants and one servant owed him 10,000 talents. A talent represented about 20 years wages for a day laborer, so this man owed something like 200,000 years wages. So this was a debt which he could not possibly ever pay off, even as I think it implies that somehow he had stolen from the king. And so the king ordered that the man, his wife, and his children be sold into slavery. They don't have the money. Their very lives will pay that debt for the duration of what they got left. 
That means he would pay with his life. And the man begged the king to be patient with him and he would repay the debt. And of course, this is ridiculous. He absolutely cannot repay this debt. It's ridiculous to even say such a thing. It would be like after killing a man, telling the judge, be patient with me and I'll raise him from the dead. No, you won't. No, you won't. The only appropriate punishment is death. But the king took pity on him and released him from the debt, which meant the king himself ate that debt of 200,000 years of wages. But soon after, the newly forgiven man found another man. That is, he went looking for him, a man who owed him 100 denarii, that is, 100 days wages. And he seized him, and he choked him, and he demanded the money from him. And in response, the man being choked said, have patience with me. I will repay you. It's the exact same phrase the first man had said to the king. But he refused, and he went and he put him into prison until he should pay the debt. Now, 100 days wages is not nothing. It's not nothing. That amount of money is a real significant debt, but it does not compare to 200,000 years worth of debt that was owed to the king. And once, with that newly, and, and once that, that story about what the newly forgiven man had done had made its way back to the king, here's how the king responded. He said, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, the master delivered him over to the jailers until he should pay all the debt which meant he would die in prison, and that would be that. And of course, that's fair. That's what he deserved. Jesus then ends his story with these words. This is to his disciples, mind you. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. From your heart. So it's not a, a superficial forgiveness where we become like what is so common in our town, you know, frenemies, right? You know, people who give the superficial appearance of being friends, but they actually hate each other and they make it known in private. No, we are to forgive from the heart, from the place where God is moving in us from immaturity to maturity through the Spirit. And the danger of this story, of course, is either to relativize it or to reject the notion of justice. We relativize it by saying, listen, this is clearly an impossible ideal, and we can't really forgive people like this. Some, some sins, yeah, but other sins, absolutely not. It's like how some conservative Christians actively engaged in the cultural wars right now will say, you know, it is fine and it is good that Jesus taught us to turn the other cheek. But there's a time and place for that. And right now, it's not the time and it's not the place. Which, of course, raises the question, well, when is the right time and place for that? And inevitably, the answer will be when it's convenient for me. And y'all, I don't know how many times you've ever been smacked on the cheek. It's never a convenient time to get that smacked and to forgive. 
Likewise, the temptation is to assume that forgiveness means the rejection of justice. So as Rachel Denhollander so powerfully demonstrated in her statement in court regarding the sentencing of serial abuser Dr. Larry Nasser, she both advocated for a lengthy prison sentence in order to protect victims and families from his great wickedness, and it was great. Even as she looked him in the face and forgave him for what he did to her and prayed for his salvation that he might know the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why I would never counsel a woman ever in an abusive marriage to forgive her husband, pray for his repentance, and keep taking the beating. Ever. No, by abusing his wife, the man has forfeited his marriage and his abuse must stop. And to tell a woman to endure with abuse for the sake of forgiveness would be as bad as allowing Larry Nasser to have remained the team doctor for the women's Olympic gymnastics team. No. Now, even as forgiveness is open to all people, even to Hitler, abusive actions must not be allowed to continue. And even as we are forgiven for our sins, sometimes our sin is such that we cannot remain in certain positions or relationships. Would we pray for hope for that man? Yes, but he must be removed from the situation. He must be removed from the situation for his own good for the protection of the innocent, and to get him to stop sinning. So there's no such thing as cheap forgiveness. None. Forgiveness is always costly, both for God and for us. And what's more, forgiveness requires real wisdom in the full counsel of Scripture. And like the fruit of the Spirit, it is something we grow into over time. Now, recognizing how I just ended with something that's complicated. We're going to pick this up again next week, even as we're going to keep moving into and lead us not into temptation. So more to come next week. Let me pray for us as we come into the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, you are good. Your steadfast love endures forever. You are so full of kindness and mercy. You love to move people from immaturity to maturity. You love to turn people who are desperately wicked into your sons and daughters, and we give you thanks for that. We pray now as we come into the Lord's Supper that this would be a great time of both joy and somber reflection. Joyful because we know there is nothing that can touch us in this life and death because you have us, but also somber reflection because you work in us your salvation and you call us to walk with you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.